All right. How are we doing, Salt Company? Doing good? Uh, like Timmy said, my name's Josiah Sabino. Um, I am from Florida. Not really. I'm actually from Iowa and then moved to Florida a couple of years ago. Um, I am uh, married, so my wife is here. Michelle, would you stand up? I love doing this. Yes, stand up, hon. Come on. There she is. There she is, my pride and joy. We actually met in college, and guess where we met? Salt Company, which gives some of you young men hope that you could be sitting next to your future spouse. Um, so, yeah, that was really fun. But guys, I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I give Timmy a lot of crap, honestly, because he just beats me at every single thing in life, and it is so frustrating. I lost, I think, nine games of pickleball to you today which uh, that was really hard. That hurt deeply. Um, but I love Timmy. He's an incredible leader, isn't he? He is a, you are a man of the Lord, a man of character, and you guys are so privileged to have him leading you guys. Can we just give him and Lindsay a round of applause? And to your staff. Um, Guys, this is amazing what the Lord is doing here. I don't think you realize how incredible this is. I'm hearing about stories of some of you who have just come to know Jesus, others of you who are really pondering that, and I'm just so excited to be here and seeing this happen. Uh, we've gotten to see this happen at the University of Florida the past three years, and God is just writing this incredible story, and he's writing it here too, and so I'm happy to be here. I got a question for you guys tonight to kick us off. Have you ever noticed that the things that you thought that were so amazing as a kid, when you grew up, you realized they actually kind of suck? Have you ever realized that? This happened to me uh, a couple years ago. I went to SeaWorld. So basically, SeaWorld is eh, and Disney is amazing, Disney Universal. SeaWorld is one of the theme parks in Orlando, and my family and I went, Michelle and I and my parents, and... Um, we went during COVID. It was like right after COVID, which was a mistake on our end. And so a lot of the rides were closed. And uh, there was one ride that was open, though, and it was something, it was a ride called Puck's Penguin Adventure. Yeah. And so we're like, oh, okay, we'll go check this out. And basically, the premise of the ride was that you were supposed to get in this cart and travel to Antarctica and help this little lost penguin named Puck find his way home to his family. And so we're like, yeah, let's do this. Like, this penguin needs our help, you guys. So we get in line. We actually find out that the ride portion is closed, but we still get to, like, do a walk-through aquarium and, like, see some live penguins. And we're like, yes. So we get in line, and this announcer comes online, and he's like, Welcome to Puck's Penguin Adventure. Are you ready to help Puck find his way home? And we're like, yes! Like, I'm waving my corndog in the air. Like, <laughs> I've never been more passionate about helping a penguin find his way home. And uh, then the announcer's like, all right, welcome to Antarctica. And the doors swing open, and there's this music playing, and it gets really cold, and we go running in. And I step into this room. And it was the worst thing I've ever seen. It was the saddest thing I've ever seen. These penguins were like standing there, just like staring at the ground, like they themselves looked cold. And there was like a painting of like Antarctica on the back wall, but it didn't even look like Antarctica. And the workers were like throwing up fake snow. It smelled like pee. It was awful. And I was like, why did I like aquariums as a kid? This is terrible. Well, the worst part was, as I'm looking at these penguins who are hating their life, I look over at this, this one penguin in the corner, 
and he's literally like turned around facing a wall, just like staring at the wall. And I reached over to help this guy and give him a hug. No, I didn't. I actually filmed a video and I brought it to you tonight. So if we can get that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, that's him. Give it up for Puck. He's a... Uh... We named that penguin Puck for the rest of the day. But that, like, that is so sad, isn't it? And it's actually more sad that my dad's laughing at him the entire time. Um, but here's why that makes me sad. It's not because Puck is, uh, isn't comfortable, right? This, this penguin, I'm, I'm sure they set like the aquarium to perfect penguin degree temperatures. I'm not sad because he's not being fed. I'm sure they are feeding him the premier cuts of like penguin meat. I don't know what a penguin eats, but I'm sure he's getting great food in there. And I wasn't sad because he wasn't safe. Like there's no way a polar bear reaches over and grabs him in the tank. Like SeaWorld shuts down if that happens. Here's what made me sad about that penguin. I was sad because he is missing out on the mission that he was made for. He's missing out on the life that he was made to live. Like, he's not supposed to be at SeaWorld, standing in a corner with, like, no friends. He is supposed to be in the real Antarctica, like, chasing after real fish that aren't dead and pre-prepared, or, you know, getting attacked by polar bears. He's supposed to be on the mission of life that he was made for. And I share that story because I think sometimes in Christianity, we can live in a Christian aquarium, where we are safe, we are fed, and we are comfortable, but we're missing out on the mission of life that God has for us. And tonight, I wanna ask this question, what is the mission of life that God has for you? If you know him, if you claim to follow Jesus tonight, what is the life that he has for you? What is the purpose to this whole thing? That's the big question that we're getting at. And so if you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter five. That's where we're gonna be at, Mark chapter five. We're gonna be looking at a story of Jesus encountering a very unique individual. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screen. So Mark chapter five, I'm gonna read the first five verses. It says, then they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So right out of the gates, we get introduced to a man who is possessed by demons. And look at how Mark describes him. He says that this guy had to be bound with shackles and chains. Now, what kind of people have to be bound with chains? Typically, not grandma's bringing you cookies to welcome you to the neighborhood, but actually really violent individuals. And Luke, in Luke's account of this story, he says there was a way that you could identify this guy, and that's that he was naked. And so you have this really like scary, kind of terrifying individual, and the worst part of this guy's situation 
is that he can't be helped. It says every time the people tried to bind him, he would smash the shackles to pieces. Their chains couldn't bring about real change. And notice where he lives. Mark says that this guy lives in the tombs. Now, real quick, get out of your head like a clean cemetery with like picture-perfect stones and roses and nicely cut grass. The, The Jews actually disposed of dead bodies not underneath the ground, but in caves. So this isn't clean, polished, put together. This is rotting corpses. This is like an odor and scent of death. And this is where the demons have driven this guy to live. Or perhaps where the people placed him because of his uncleanliness. There was actually Jewish laws that kept people from being around things that were unclean. And maybe they had placed him there. I'm sure everybody in town took every measure to avoid this guy. Like, I'm sure there were signs placed around his little tomb area that said, danger ahead, like, turn back now, run for your life. I'm sure, like, kids getting dropped off from school, like, went the other way home. Like, do not go near this guy. Well, as terrifying as he was to so many, you get a real glimpse of how frightened he himself was. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, always, all night and day, he was crying out among the tombs. All night and day, he was crying out. He never slept. He was always restless, kept awake by the evil that had made a home in his mind. And the verse also says, and he would cut himself with stones. You know, as I've known friends and even family who have struggled with cutting themselves, what I've learned is that people typically don't cut themselves to end their life so that they can feel nothing, but actually to sense life so that they can feel something. These cries and these cuts tell us that somewhere underneath this evil, somewhere underneath all of his strength and power is actually someone very scared, very alone, and very afraid. And I'm sure the only thought that probably traveled through his mind in any moment that it wasn't shared with demons was surely there is no hope for me. Now, you might be hearing this whole story and thinking to yourself, man, this is a guy who I have nothing in common with. Like, I cannot relate to this guy's situation at all. I actually want to argue that every single person here sitting in Cincinnati can relate to this guy, not physically, but spiritually. Maybe tonight you would say, I have never been possessed by demons. But maybe you do know what it's like to be enslaved to sin and at times to have sin rule over your life. Maybe you don't find yourself living in tombs or a cemetery, but maybe this year, no matter where you live, you feel spiritually cold, lifeless, and empty. Maybe you don't run around naked, but you're ashamed of what people would see if they saw the real you. Maybe you're not a violent person, but you have seen your sin hurt people. And every time you try to take control of your sin, 
every time you, you try to chain it down to be better, to put some order in your life, to be disciplined, to get it together, your sin, it just breaks loose again. And it hurts you and it hurts all that you love and care about. Guys, the Bible teaches that this man's story is just a dramatic illustration of all of our lives apart from God. Paul said in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sin, living as slaves to your flesh and under the influence of the ruler of the earth. Physically, you were alive, but spiritually, you were dead. And there are some tonight sitting in your chair, you look very much physically alive. You came in here walking and talking and smiling, showing all signs of life, but spiritually, you're dead. And if you're honest with yourself, you might even admit that like the man in our story, the real you is not someone who feels powerful, mighty, and in control of your life, but instead someone who feels very trapped, alone, and looking for answers. Now there's another group of us who are spiritually alive. We've been made alive by Christ. But maybe you come into tonight feeling like you are losing a battle to your sin. Almost as if underneath the influence of the enemy, you have been driven back to old habits, to the tombs of your sin. You know, it's interesting how the devil works. I think we have a very Americanized view of him that sometimes sees him as someone who only works very publicly. And it's easy because we don't see public demonstrations of evil to almost dismiss the devil's existence entirely. But guys, what Jesus says all throughout scripture is that the devil is real. He is powerful. And his primary objective in this life is to steal, it is to kill, and it is to destroy your life. But the primary way that he attacks is oftentimes not publicly, though he can, like instances in this story, but more likely, the way that he attacks you is through small acts of deception. Jesus said, this is the devil's signature move. It's lies. It is to lie to you. It, Jesus says, Satan is the father of lies. It's his native tongue. It's the only language he knows. So I learned something the other day about how Alaskans kill wolves. Do you guys want to know how that happens? It's pretty crazy. So these, uh, these Alaskans, what they'll do is they will take these little blades and they will dip them in blood. And they'll dip them and basically that blood will freeze around the blade and they'll keep doing that again and again and again until they've made basically this like frozen bloody popsicle. And what they'll do is they'll take these and they'll plant them all around their camp. And what happens is the wolves smell the blood and they're drawn in and what they do is they begin to lick this popsicle. And slowly without realizing it, their, their mouth goes completely numb. And soon, what they cannot taste, what they cannot feel, is that they are licking the blade of the knife. And as you can imagine, it shreds their entire tongue, and these wolves die. They bleed out. Notice how, yeah, wow. <laughs> Let's just pause there for a second. Okay, that happened. <laughs> Let's pray. No, can you imagine? <laughs> Guys, 
Notice the attack. Think of how brilliant it is. If they were to attack with guns and bows and arrows and go publicly, they'd never kill a wolf. But instead, they deceive them way more subtly, but the result is still death. And Jesus says, this is how Satan works. He lies to you by making the things that will kill you look beautiful. What, he, he will make the things that look beautiful look harmless. Oh, that addiction won't harm you. Oh, that one glance won't kill you. Oh, that one compromise, that one website, that one thing that you're okay with, it's not gonna hurt you. Oh, that one experience, you're fine. You will be happy, actually, if you do that. Oh, that money, I promise you, it will make you happy. You are not beautiful the way that you are. You need to keep working, and then you'll be happy. John Mark Comer said, show me the lies that you're believing, and I'll tell you the sin that you're committing. Because we live out of whatever we believe to be true. And maybe tonight you come into this space, and you're not just ashamed of sin that's going on in your life, but you're frustrated because the things that you said you would never do again, you're still doing. And I remember being there my junior year of college. I'd followed Jesus for two years, but what nobody knew about me is that I had sexual immorality going on in my life and no one knew. And I felt riddled. I'm sure you felt this before, riddled with hypocrisy. And maybe it's in those moments where you return to your failures, that you start to believe a lie that I've believed at times. That maybe God can forgive me, but most likely, God is no longer delighting in me. His heart towards me, it's no longer compassionate. Or like the psalmist says, rich and abounding in love. But instead, his heart towards me because of my failures, cold, frustrated, disappointed, my patience is wearing thin, Josiah. Get it together. Really? Again? I thought you were better than this. And maybe as you think God is distancing yourself, himself from you, you begin to distance yourself from him. And maybe tonight you're sitting here and you just feel hopeless. Hopeless. Well, there's good news for all of us tonight. There's good news for you whether you're spiritually dead or spiritually alive and returning to dead things. Because there's someone who in the middle of the mess of this guy's life, at the entrance of his tomb where nobody dared to go, that Jesus' boat pulls up to shore. Look at what happens next, verses six through 10. It says this, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? Son of the most high God, I beg you before God, do not torment me. For he had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name, he asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Now hang on just a second. This cannot be the same guy we just read about. Because the guy that we just read about was the man who couldn't be controlled by anyone. This was the guy who broke chains and shackles like toothpicks. And yet, as soon as Jesus got out of the boat, did you see what happens? Immediately, he not only comes running out of the tombs, 
but he bows before Jesus. The one who submitted to no one is now under total submission. The demons know, I think, who has just arrived on land. Look at what they said in verse 7. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. The Luke account records them saying, please don't banish us into hell. The demons know in this moment who is standing before them and the punishment that's going to come through Jesus to them. You know, I remember the worst thing that you could hear growing up in my house was actually from my mom. And she, these were the worst words you could ever hear. Josiah, go to your room and wait for your dad to get home. If you heard that, that was code red. Like you were done for. Because what that meant is you had pushed mom so far to her limit that you were handed over to your father. <laughs> and I remember just like so many days sitting on my bed, like looking at the clock, hoping it did not strike five. Because I knew when my dad gets home, like I am getting spanked. Like this is not good. And you're just praying he's not home early. Guys, the reason that the demons are begging Jesus is because they're worried that he's home early. Well, what is Jesus gonna do with these demons? What is he gonna do in this moment? Look at verse 11 through 13. Verse 11. Now a large herd of pigs were there feeding on the hillside. Real quick, if you have any kind of love for pigs, like a kind of like a, I don't know, any kind of affection towards pigs, you might wanna cover your ears real quick. Um, the demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. Can you imagine witnessing this happen? Like, I'm trying to picture people, like, fishing down underneath the cliff. They're like, hey, nice catch, man. And then the ground begins to shake. And out of nowhere, there are pigs flying down from the heavens, just like falling everywhere. Like, can you imagine witnessing this? That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? What I find more crazy, though, what I find somehow even more remarkable than 2,000 pigs hurling themselves off a cliff into the sea is that the demons needed permission to do it. Guys, the devil, I just want you to know, the devil is real. Jesus says he is real. In fact, he calls him the prince of power, a ruler over this world. And, and some of you feel like he has total rule and reign over my life right now. Like I'm just powerless. I'm losing the battle to my sin. But guys, what happens when Jesus steps out of the boat? The man comes running out of the tombs and Jesus is standing and the demons are kneeling. Yes, the prince named Satan may have some power, but even princes bow before kings, which means this, it is possible for you to experience victory over your sin. It is possible to experience victory from the sexual addiction that has enslaved your life for years, from the idolatry that's existed in your life, the lying, the drunkenness, the immorality, the wickedness that you feel like I have no control over, Jesus says, I can take all that is broken in you and I can make it into a new creation. Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus says, you no longer, you no longer have to be known by your past failures, your past shame, or your guilt. Because the forces of darkness that have power over you 
have power over it. The truth shall set you free. This man, in a single moment, was freed from all of the sin that had ever afflicted him because his sin meant Jesus, and it fled the scene. Jesus has power over darkness, but don't just see his power here. You have to see his heart. Do you see his posture towards this sinner? And why does understanding the posture of Jesus matter so much? It's because I don't think that we struggle so much to believe in the power of God, the power that he has to set us free from sin, the power that he has to make us alive. I think that our struggle is to believe that he wants to. But see his heart. See his heart here. Every single person in our story runs away from this man. Unclean, don't want anything to do with you. Stay away. Jesus runs right towards him. Jesus moves right towards him. The chapter before this is Mark chapter four. The disciples and Jesus, they're in the boat. Remember, the disciples are panicking. Jesus calms the whole storm. That's the chapter that leads to this one, meaning this, that Jesus sailed across the sea. He sailed through a storm to get to one man. That's why he's here in this moment. He's, he's here for the man, not even just for the demons. If he was here just to conquer evil, he would have cast them into hell. But he almost like shrugs them off. He's like, yeah, go to the pigs. I'm here for this guy. I'm here for you. He isn't there to destroy sin in a man but to rescue a man from his sin. And if it's true about Jesus that he is a God whose heart is to rescue, and he is a God who is drawn to, near towards sinners, then I think that dismisses two lies we often believe about God. First, to the unbeliever in the room that thinks you need to get your life together before you can experience forgiveness. And secondly, to the believer who thinks that God's heart has changed towards him because of your failures. We often misunderstand God. We think it's our failures that push him away. Guys, on the contrary, it is your failures that draw him near. Jesus doesn't wait till you have it figured out to extend you mercy. No, his mercy is actually applied at the height of your failure. Charles Spurgeon said there's 48 chapters that tell us about what God is like. There's 48 chapters about this is who Jesus was like, this is what he did. There's one singular verse where he actually grabs a mic and says, this is who I am. And it's Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. And what does he say there? I am righteous, put together, in charge, unapproachable. No. I am gentle and I am lowly. Come to me, all of you who are righteous, put together, never sinned. No. Come to me, all of you who are weary and who are burdened. Do you feel burdened tonight? Do you feel like no matter how hard I try to fix my problems, I can't? Jesus says to you, come to me. Come to me. My mercy can actually set you free. And not only that, but I want to do that for you. I find it interesting that the only question that Jesus asks, there's one question, and he asks him, what is your name? Why would you want to ask that, Jesus? Who cares what his name is? He's the demoniac. He's the demon-possessed person. 
why does Jesus ask him his name? It's because Jesus doesn't know you by your past failures. Notice who answers for him when he asks him his name. Who answers? Satan. He says, my name is Legion. I've heard it said like this from one of my pastor friends named Saul. Satan knows you by your name, but calls you by your sin. Jesus knows you by your sin, but calls you by your name. Satan loves to remind you of failures in your life. Jesus tonight says, actually, I see the real you. I see the failures in your life. I don't know you by those things anymore. I actually welcome people like you. Jesus meets you in your sin. The only qualification for forgiveness tonight and newness in your life is actually your brokenness, which this doesn't mean in some weird way that Jesus loves your sin. It means that Jesus hates your sin, but he loves you. Jesus is drawn to desperate people in desperate places. Well, look at how this story ends. There are still 2,000 pigs who are dead, and that is bound to cause a commotion. Look at verses 14 through 17. The men who tended the pigs ran off and reported it in the town and countryside. Yeah, they did. And people went to see what had happened. Now, I'm just like picturing like these guys, like, I, like a river kind of runs down from the lake, and they're like, where'd this all happen? And there's like pigs floating down the river, and they're like, okay, here we go. He's up there. And they run up, and look at what happens. Verse 15, the crowd gets there. It says, they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed. And I love this. Sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, total transformation. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it described it to them who had happened to the demon-possessed man and told him about the pigs. Then they began to ask him to leave their region. They asked him to leave. What? What? You would expect... If somebody came and took care of your biggest problem that you had, this guy who had harassed their town, that they would at least thank him. Jesus deserves a statue in this moment. But they, they instead do what sadly many of us do to God. And it breaks my heart, and that is ask Jesus to leave. Because here's what's true, is that some of us tonight are more comfortable and used to living in the presence of our sin than we are in the presence of God. And so they ask God, go, get out. Don't come to this place. They ask him to leave. But look at the man's response. I love this. Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, as Jesus is leaving this scene, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly, that he might remain with him. In the midst of all of the go-aways, there's one, can I please come with you? Please let me come with you. I, I've experienced who you are. Notice the, the difference in responses. The difference between the man's response and the difference between the, the crowd's response. The crowd only saw God from a distance and, and what he could do. The man saw Jesus personally and saw what he was like. And now he only wants to be with God. The truth is this. If you truly know God's heart towards you tonight, then your heart's greatest desire will be to be with him. If you know his heart, your heart will want to be with him. 
you will actually find yourself desiring to be close to him, desiring to do the things that he says. Well, look at how this story ends. What happens next, what Jesus says next to this guy is crazier than the pigs, it's crazier than the demons, it's crazier than the crowd. Look at what Jesus says, verse 19. It's the most shocking part of this story. Verse 19, Jesus looks at this man and says, Jesus did not let him go. Instead, he says, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. What? Why can't he go? Are are you serious, Jesus? This guy wants to be with you. Isn't that the purpose of being a Christian? To be safe, to be fed, to be comfortable in your walk with Jesus in your little Christian scene? No. Back to the question, what is the mission that Jesus has for our lives? What is it that he wants you to do if he's shown you mercy? The mission that he has for your life is this. I have shown you mercy. Now it's your turn to go and tell people about what's been done for you. Salt Company, what if the mission that Jesus has for our lives is much bigger than just us? What if his plan isn't just for us to experience mercy, but for the whole world to experience him? What if God actually came to you on his way to someone else, your roommate, your classmate, your brother, your sister, your family, who you've never opened up the name of Jesus to? And you say, Josiah, there's, there's no way, okay? There is no way God wants to use me because I don't know enough yet. Like, I'm brand new at this. I just became a Christian. Like, I do not know enough. I'll start talking about Jesus once I know more. That's when I'll start saying things. Guys, let me ask you this. What the heck did this guy know? (laughs) What did this guy know? He had no training. He didn't know the three circles. He didn't know what sanctification or justification meant. He had no field experience. He didn't go through Gospel 101 or read Gospel-Centered Life. He did not even have a Bible. He knew nothing except one thing. Darkness used to rule over my life. I met a man named Jesus, and everything changed. All that he had that day was a story, a story of mercy, And Jesus looks at this man and he says, you are the perfect candidate. You will be the first missionary that I ever sent. Not a Jew, not one of my disciples, but a Gentile with a broken past. You will be the perfect vessel for the gospel to reach the ears of all of your peers because when they see how I've changed you, they are going to be amazed. And it says, verse 20, that this man went to the center of the city and he began to tell everyone what had happened. Imagine that testimony. Like, hey guys, I was a demon-possessed guy, used to run around naked, I did that whole bit. Like, you know who I am. (laughs) Used to live in the cemetery. But now I'm alive because of this man named Jesus. And it says the people were amazed. They were shocked. They had no words. 
And this man actually went around to the entire region and told everyone what Jesus had done for him, so much so that two chapters later in Mark chapter 7, Jesus comes back to the same area, to the same people, and the same crowd that had pushed him away is now bringing him their sick. They're bringing him everybody that they know, saying, this man Jesus does everything well. Now they're all leaning in. Guys, what does it take? What does it take to be ready to witness to others about Jesus? What does it take? Simply this, a changed life. A changed life. And what if tonight Jesus looks at you? And you, and you, and you, and all of us. And he says, you guys are the perfect candidates to take the gospel to the ears of your families, of your friends, and of the people who know you. I want to use you because when they see how your life has changed, the only possible explanation will be me. If you've received mercy tonight, then you can go out of this place confident with a story to tell, with people to reach, because your story actually has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with what Jesus has already done for you. And what was that? And we'll end with this. What was the mercy that was shown to us? It was this, that you and I, like the man in our story, used to be dead. We used to be ruled by darkness, under the power of Satan himself, enslaved to our sin, and completely helpless. But Jesus sailed to the entrance of our tombs, not in a boat, but actually in a manger. And this Jesus, who is rich in mercy, would offer us freedom from our chains. How? By being put into them himself. He would become sin for all of us. And in his flesh, his flesh instead of ours would be cut open with sharp stones on the cords of whips. And there at Calvary, he instead of us would be hung on a cross, unclothed, ashamed for the entire world to see. And there he would die. And he would be buried in the tomb that should have read your name here, it read his. But he wouldn't stay there. Three days later, he would leave the tomb vacant with his clothes folded. And in his victory over death, the enemy trembled because this Jesus in that moment proved that he had rule and reign over sin itself. Guys, tonight Jesus invites you to first experience mercy if you haven't. If you stand here tonight and you have never believed that to be true, that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and he took all the punishment that you deserve because of your sin upon himself for you, what is holding you back? This is the greatest news that's ever been extended to us. And if you have experienced mercy, if you have experienced freedom from your old life, then you can have confidence to go out and share your story. No matter what you know, no matter your training, you have a story, a story of mercy that people need to hear. Let's pray.
Jesus, we, we have placed all of our hope in your life and the fact that you came to this world and you never sinned once. And yet in some unbelievable turn of circumstances, God the Father would look at you, perfect, spotless, and righteous, and he would treat you the way I deserve to be treated for all of my sin. Jesus, we thank you that you are desperate to restore sinners. You are desperate to to meet us in our brokenness. And I pray tonight, if there's someone in this room who has never just experienced your mercy, who's never just trusted that to be true, that they would transfer all of their trust under the finished work of the cross. And Jesus, I pray that this room, this movement that is happening here in Cincinnati at Salt Company, this incredible story you're writing, God, would you multiply it even more? God, would you bring your kingdom to Cincinnati in a way that we've never experienced before? Would it start with people in this room realizing that they have a story to tell? a story of mercy, a story of transformation, a story of your kindness to them, and our stories can bring about real change in the lives of the people around us. God, would you do it? Would you do a mighty work? It's in your name we pray. Amen.